Good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Amy. I'm going to be leading worship today. Um, welcome to you all here um, at Mar here in church and also on Zoom. Um, thank you all for gathering today, and thank and thanks to everyone who um, worked to make the service come together today. It was um, a team family effort, <laughs> and um, I just I really appreciate you all, and I'm really glad that we're able to gather today. All of you who feel dry and thirsty, come to the water. Fill your hands, splash your face, drink deeply, let it run down your chin. Creator God, our living water, we give thanks for the springs of water and deep wells, for the streams and rivers of our watershed, for the rains that fall, we give thanks for the water that sustains our life. We give thanks, O oh God, for water that washes and cleans, for water that refreshes and restores. We give thanks for the water that renews our life. We give thanks for your love and mercy pouring into our lives soaking into our parched places, filling us up to the brim, overflowing in us to be a blessing for all. Come to the water of life. Our first song is uh, number 128 in Voices Together, Wankan Tanka. Many, you know this as many and great. Um, I really like that they've got the Dakota words in uh, this particular hymnal. And in just kind of investigating a little bit more, the, the writer of this hymn, Joseph Renville, um, his name is, uh, it's a French name, de Renville. Um, his father was a French voyageur, and his mother was Dakota. Um, her name was Minnie Wing. Um, and so he was bicultural, um, and he uh, helped bridge cultures, uh, the European and the Dakota, and wrote this song. Um, I'm actually going to sing the Dakota because I like these kinds of things, so um, you're welcome to sing along if you like. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. The only difference is that uh, everything that's written with a C is basically a ch sound. Um, so I'll sing the first verse and you're welcome to join. And then we'll sing verses one and two in English. Mach biakine yachna kecha, 
And if you'll turn to number 664, Be Still My Soul. Still my soul, the waves and winds. 
We're now going to move into a time of confession and reconciliation. Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear, and what has become for us a consuming fire of judgment. Set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open us to a future in which we can be changed and grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. May the love which overcomes all differences, which heals all wounds, which puts to flight all fears and reconciles all who are separated, be in us and among us, now and always. Amen. And we can now um, share a sign of peace with each other. I think we're still staying kind of in our space, right? Or are we, we're still, yes, okay. <laughs> we're still seeing, staying in our space, but um, waves and heart signs, Whatever, whatever works for you. Um, sign language, if you remember that. But share peace with each other. <laughs> All right, and I'm sorry that you have to hear from me again, but I did forget to ask someone to read <laughs> our, um, our reading from the book of Isaiah today, so I will, I'll just read it. This is from Isaiah chapter 43. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I will give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba in exchange for you. 
Because you are precious in thy sight and honored, and I love you, I give, I give people in return for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. And now we have um, Chris with a sermon today. Uh, please pray with me. Uh, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Much of what I have here is kind of just scattered thoughts that have come out of years now of doing the summer Bible study, um, and so I thought I would kind of incorporate that as a reflection here. Um, first, I'd like for you to imagine a particular situation. Uh, imagine for a moment that you've decided to go to Comic-Con for the first time in your life. Um, you meet someone there who claims to be the biggest fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe in existence. So all of the Marvel movies that have been coming out over the last several years. Uh, and imagine, I don't know if this is an easy thing to imagine or a hard thing to imagine for you, but imagine that you're a pretty big MCU fan yourself, a pretty big Marvel Cinematic Universe fan yourself. So you strike up a conversation with this person who claims to be the biggest fan in existence. Uh, you ask them, what do you think about the fact that the Thanos snap was incorporated into a lot of subsequent movies? The what now, this person responds? The Thanos snap, you know, the one that happened in Avengers Endgame. I don't know who or what that is, is the response they give. Okay, you think that's a bit odd. The Thanos snap was one of the biggest plot points in the entire MCU. Surely this person hasn't watched one of the movies in the MCU without running into it referenced in some way, shape, or form, at least some of the recent ones. But you let this pass on and you ask a bit of a simpler question. Which movie is your favorite, you ask this person. Oh, I've never sat through any of the movies, they reply. I've seen a few scenes here and there, but I couldn't even tell you what any of the plot lines are in any of the movies. Now you're really puzzled. If, if this person hasn't actually, seen, well, you ask them, if you haven't actually sat through an MCU movie, how can you say that you're the biggest MCU fan in existence? Oh, I look up the memes on the internet all the time, they respond. Um, you know, like all the time. Like I know every single one of the memes. So, you're, again, you're confused. So you know a bunch of random quotes from MCU movies out of context, sometimes interspersed with lines that aren't actually in the films? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Sometimes they have lines that aren't actually in the films? I thought they were all direct quotes. Nope, you respond. <laughs> now, I imagine that not too many people at MCU sessions at Comic-Con are probably going to take this person very seriously if they encounter them. This person might even get laughed out of the convention for not being a quote-unquote real fan. But here's the reason why I tell this story. Um, as a biblically literate person, this is what my experience is like talking to Bible-believing Bible American Christians on a regular basis. Um, and I'm not talking about biblical literacy rates among people who grew up going to church but then drifted away from the church when they became adults. I'm saying that this is an experience I have regularly with people who claim that the Bible structures their whole life. I'm not saying that this is an experience that I have with this church. I'm just saying out and about in the United States running across Christians, this happens a lot. Um, this is an experience I regularly have with people who go to church every single Sunday. 
I run into so many people who can quote verses at me, but that yet can't tell me major plot points in the Bible. Uh, for example, what the Babylonian exile was. Uh, the Babylonian exile is explicitly discussed in about a third of the books of the Bible, and then implicitly mentioned in about another third, so it's kind of an important detail. Um, similar, similarly, I run into plenty of people who can quote Bible verses at me, yet cannot give me a basic plot synopsis of any of the biblical books. Uh, imagine running into someone claiming to be a Harry Potter fan who couldn't tell you what happens in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, or any other book in the series for that matter. Um, it wouldn't matter if they go around saying, you're a wizard, Harry, a whole hell of a lot during the day. They, you, know, you probably still wouldn't call them a fan of the series. Um, or imagine running into someone who claims to be a fan of the movie It's a Wonderful Life who couldn't tell you that the movie has an anti-suicide message, that that is one of its themes, right? Now, I'm not asking for every Christian to become a biblical scholar. That actually might be a terrible thing, now that I think of it. Um, I, and I would hope that in a place like, for example, Comic-Con, which deals with fandom, it, that it would be open to people at all levels of fandom, right? You can't expect everyone present at MCU sessions to have seen every movie that comes out. There's like a million a year. Um, and you can't expect that every fan is familiar with every comic series that the movies are based on. Similarly, I don't expect that every Christian to be biblically literate, needs to be able to give me a plot synopsis of the book of Obadiah, right? But America needs far more actual fans of the Bible is, is one of the concerns that I have because most of the people who claim to be Bible-believing Christians in America would probably be given the side eye at BibleCon if we were to hold it. Things are actually a bit worse than I, I've portrayed them here because it seems to be the case that a considerable number of American Christians hold views about what the Bible should say that prevent them from appreciating its actual contents. To put, more blunt, put it more bluntly, they want the Bible to say something different than it actually does and to be something other than it actually is. And yes, I'm talking about conservative Christians here, not just folks in progressive Christian camps. Um, I, to give you an example here, I once watched a TED Talk given by David Ellis Dickerson. You can look it up on YouTube. I, it's well worth a watch. Uh, David Ellis Dickerson was a writer for the TV show The American Bible Challenge, which was a Bible trivia show hosted by the comedian Jeff Foxworthy that ran on the game show network from 2012 to 2014. And I made nothing in that last sentence up. It gets, I, I have it on paper here, and it looks weirder as you, as you continue to stare at it. I know how it sounds. But it was a thing. Uh, and according to Dickerson, the show's primary audience was conservative Christians, predominantly evangelicals, fundamentalists, that kind of thing. That was their target audience, and they knew it. Um, Dickerson related to his audience during the TED Talk that he had to tread really, really carefully when it came to what questions he could ask on the show. Um, first of all, he said that they could not draw questions from roughly 52 out of the 66 books of the Bible because conservative Christian audiences just don't care about the contents of those books. That was actually what he was told by his producers. That's almost 80% of the Bible disqualified from consideration right out of the gates, 52 out of 66 books. But it went even deeper than that, Dickerson says. Of the, of the 14 books that remain in the Bible, he had to eliminate any references to things that were not family-friendly, quote-unquote. 
Here's Dickerson's exact quote from his TED talk. We even had a word come from on high from the network. Don't even use the word concubine. Because they were terrified, you know, that they would show something on TV, the kid would turn to his mom and go, Mommy, what's a concubine? And we would get angry letters from conservative Christians, furious that we had, you know, exposed their children to the Bible. <laughs> he continued, as an interesting side note, by the way, we also couldn't talk about the crucifixion. Our producer said, you know, people are eating. I guess they were, it was shown during the dinner hour, and they thought that that would upset people. Further, he said, he had to rule out diverse accounts of a single event if it occurred in any of these 14 books. So, he couldn't ask a question that suggested that Matthew and Luke might have differing accounts of the birth of Jesus, for example. Um, he concluded with this, and this is a direct quote, In the process, we sold to our Christian market the kind of Bible they actually believe in and not the kind of Bible we actually have. You know, he mentioned having to softball questions to smooth things over and to insert things that were commonly believed but aren't actually in the text. Now, it worked. Um, th this is a direct quote from Dickerson again. It worked. We went three seasons. The debut of our show had the highest ratings in the history of the game show network. We got nominated for two Emmys. They got all the awards. They got all the accolades. Now, if you do watch the video, I think Dickerson kind of drops the ball at the end of it when he comes to stating his conclusion, and he does say some really weird things about Luke's historical accuracy that made me raise an eyebrow. But I thought his main point during the, the talk was a really, really good one. I can't think of any better evidence than he supplied that many Christians, even quote-unquote Bible-believing Christians, desperately hate the Bible as it actually is. And they wish they had something very different than we actually have. Now, if you haven't figured this out by now, in my life in this community, I really actually do love the Bible that we have. Um, I've made it my goal to embrace this Bible that we actually have and not to pretend that it's something as different than what it is. Whether I'm successful in that or not is, is, is a matter of judgment that you can hold me to. Um, and I actually want people to love this Bible that we have too, other people. Um, in fact, I'll go further. I thank God every day that we do not have the Bible that most conservative Christians think that we ought to have, the folks that watch this particular type of quiz show. <laughs> because if we had that Bible, it would be terrible. It would be awful. I actually do not want the uncomplicated, tidy, quote-unquote, family-friendly, sanitized, univocal Bible that many Christians think that we ought to have. Because if we did, our tradition would have died a long time ago, and we wouldn't be here today. We would not be able to find continuity with other communities of Christians across time and space. And we would genuinely be worse people because of it. Be careful what you wish for when you wish that the Bible was other than it is. So I thought I'd try to make a case that what we have is good. Um, because our frequent desire to have something different than we do has often stood in the way of reading the Bible. Um, it is what has produced Christians that just memify it instead of actually coming to know the Bible in a deep way. Now, this is a big project, and I promised Rachel a shorter sermon for today. Uh, so the case that I could make is larger than the one that I'm going to make right now. Uh, I'll probably take up the rest of it when I give a sermon in November. I'm on the calendar again. But for right now, there are three arguments 
that I want to give that the Bible as we have it is better than the Bible that many Christians want. Uh, well, four, if you count the one I've already given you in these anecdotes, it's a good thing that the Bible is predominantly a story. It would be a bad thing if it were just, it were just a disconnected set of verses. All right, on with the other three arguments. Number one, it's a good thing that the Bible is not one book. It would be a bad thing if it were one book. It's also a good thing that it is not made up of just one kind of book. It would be bad if it were only made up of one kind of book. First off, what this entails is that the best way to read the Bible is though it were a library of different books, which it is. Those books have different authors, they have different plot lines, they have different themes, they are of different genres. Some are historical, some are fictional. Some are a mix, they have a historical kernel that spins off into imaginative retellings. Some are prose, some are poetry. This is a good thing. Biblical inerrantists often seem to hold that this is a bad thing. They would prefer it if every single book of the Bible was 100% historical and laid forward exact scientific descriptions of things like how the world came to be. Thank God this is not the case. The Bible as it is celebrates the diverse ways in which human, human beings communicate information. We as human beings don't communicate the things we value just through giving you history. We do value knowing our history. That is a good thing. It is an important part of truth-telling. So thank God we have, a, we have books with a thick relationship to history, like the Gospels or the Prophets. But we also tell fictional stories that illustrate our values. So thank God we have books like Job and Esther. Sometimes we don't really want to give you a story. Sometimes we'd rather just sing about it. The Bible honors that too, so thank God we have the Psalms. Sometimes we want to get really philosophical or analytical, submitting a single question or cluster of questions to great scrutiny. So thank God we have the letters of Paul in the wisdom literature. If all these books of the Bible were one kind of book, it would fail to display God's joy at the diversity of ways we as humans communicate. It would suggest that only one of those ways was good and the rest were bad. The second case... It's a good thing the Bible gives us different perspectives. It would be a bad thing if it had a univocal perspective, only one. There are different voices and perspectives in the Bible, and thank God for them. This can mean two different perspectives on a single event, or two different perspectives on the same question. This is often treated as a liability, but it's actually a strength, I think. It is a feature and not a bug. I'm glad that the central event of our faith, for example, the ministry of Jesus, is approached from four different perspectives. It is far more impressive to find that a harmony arises out of the dissonance of many different voices, as I'm convinced happens when one holds the multitude of voices in Scripture together, than to simply read something written by a single author that voices a single perspective. Um, you know, what if that person is wrong? <laughs> Some of my Muslim students that I have in class sometimes present the Quran as having a leg up on the Bible for this very reason. Uh, the Bible has dissonances, they say. It contains many different perspectives. Therefore, it contains contradictions, and contradictions are bad. A perfect God wouldn't speak in contradictions. So it's a good thing that God revealed the Quran, which has a single unitary perspective given by a single author. It cleans up the bad contradictions. Now, 
in what I just said, I don't want to dissuade you from thinking that I have negative opinions on Islam. Islam is a very rich and interesting religious tradition, and I don't want to denigrate it in anything I say up here. I found reading the Quran quite interesting, personally. And some of my more progressive Muslim friends tell me that the Quran is just as craggy as the Bible is when it all comes down to it, even as a document authored by a single hand. But even if the Quran were like what my conservative Muslim students think it is, I really wouldn't want something like that for our tradition, to be completely honest with you. I'd feel legitimately poorer if there were a single book from a single author that was the only book that we could call inspired scripture, and we were forced to treat the other books as lesser because they contain differing perspectives. Because it would suggest that God can't speak through different people in different times. And a key insight of our faith as Anabaptists is that the voice of the Holy Spirit arises out of the voices of the many. Um, and I think that that's something to keep in mind when approaching the scriptures as well. And the third case, it's a good thing that the Bible is craggy, messy, and difficult. It were, would be a bad thing if it were uncomplicated. For those who joined us during the summer Bible studies, you will probably recognize this as a very Jewish perspective on the Bible. Uh, the perspective of the rabbis was, if it isn't difficult, how will you learn, right? That might be a hard perspective to appreciate. It's probably one that sets a lot of individuals' teeth on edge initially. But think of it this way. Picture the people that you know who think that reading the Bible is simple and straightforward, that it is easily reducible to a set of simple rules to follow, and that people just need to follow those simple rules. Now ask yourself, do you want to be like those people that you can think of that hold that perspective? Do they exhibit character traits that you wish to have as an individual? And now on the other hand, picture the people that you know who think that the Bible requires a lifetime of study, uh, the people who have taken years to know it well, the people who struggle with it on a regular basis, and who admit that they are constantly coming to new appreciations of passages that they've known for years, if not decades, of their lives. Do you want to be like those people? Do they exhibit the character traits that you want to have? For me, the decision here was easy. As soon as I met folks who had clearly engaged in years of study of the Bible, who clearly wished to understand it for what it was, rather than to force it to conform to their expectations, and still had a deep appreciation for it, I knew that I wanted to be more like them than the teachers I had who discouraged you from focusing on difficult passages, who avoided engaging with many parts of the Bible, and who were well-trained in explaining away the stuff they disagreed with in order to make things easier. See, the Bible isn't just interested in being a neutral conduit of information. It's not just that God's data stream straight into your brain, right? It also wants to produce a particular type of reader, and it also wants to produce a people of a particular character. And that's why it has had a lasting role in the church over the years. And people who are trained to blindly follow a list of rules aren't particularly interesting people from a moral perspective. Sometimes the only time you can produce a certain character trait is through struggle. And so it makes sense that the text of inspired scripture forces you to struggle and to learn to struggle with the text well, 
because it's trying to turn you into a person who can struggle with the text well. Now, one thing I want, don't want you to think here when I present, yes, the Bible is difficult to understand sometimes. Um, I don't want you to think that the Bible is so complicated that it can only be adequately approached by experts. That is an unfortunate consequence that sometimes happens in some of the studies that we've done during the summer. In reality, I can tell you this much, 90% of being an expert on the Bible is about having the time and space to hear out other people's interpretations of various different biblical passages. That's it. I mean, if you think that I came up with the insights that I have on Revelation or the Gospels or the Torah or any of those books by myself, I can tell you that is not the case. Mostly, I've just sat and listened to a lot of different interpreters from a lot of different traditions and cherry-picked their best insights. That is all my job is. <laughs> it's rare that I have a read on a biblical text that somebody else didn't come up with first. And that's why it's utter foolishness to read the Bible alone as well. Because, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to come to a deep appreciation with it just reading it by yourself. Instead, when you read, talk to people about it. Talk to people about what you're reading. Talk far and wide. Talk to people you trust. Talk to people who disagree with you. Talk to people from different traditions. Turn these stories over and over and over again in your head. And turn them over and over and over again with people in conversation. Because when you ask people what they get out of a passage, the first 100 interpretations you may hear might be utter stinkers. But the 101st might be absolute freaking gold. And then you'll, you'll save that one and you'll have it with you for later. Those three details are probably enough for now. Um, but hopefully this gives you enough of an idea that um, there are reasons to celebrate, what, other reasons to celebrate what we have. Um, but I, I'll, I'll share them for another time. We'll begin our time of responding by singing number 680, Call Me Lord. Um, not that Chris has generated a storm for us at all, um, but uh, just a, a, a reminder of God's presence and peace. We'll sing this through three times. Call me Lord. 
well, when asked what song she wanted to sing, I, th I think Juanita's response was, nothing down, something happy clappy or something like that. And I thought, happy clappy, this is a great genre of song that I think we should always have a happy clappy song. So My Life Flows On, number 605, is actually a beautiful blend of both. It's, it's, there's some melancholy in it and acknowledging that uh, life has challenges, the lamentations, but um, it always says, um, love is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? So it's happy clappy. Please stand to sing this song. My life flows on in endless song Above earth's lamentation I catch the sweet though far off hymn That hails a new creation No storm can shake my inmost calm While to that rock I'm clinging since love is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? Through all the tumult and the strife, I hear that music ringing. It finds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? No storm can shake my inmost calm While to that rock I'm clinging Since love is Lord of heaven and earth How can I keep from singing? What though my joys and comforts die I know my Savior living what though the darkness gather round, songs in the night he giveth. No storm can shake my inmost calm, while to that rock I'm clinging. Since love is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? The peace of Christ makes fresh my heart, a fountain ever springing. All things are mine since I am his. How can I keep from singing? No storm can shake my inmost calm while to that rock I'm clinging. Since love is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? Please be seated. Thank you all for joining us here today. Receive, receive the benediction. Eternal God, you call us to ventures of which we cannot see the ending by paths as yet untrodden through perils unknown. Give us faith to go out with courage, not knowing where, to go, where we go, but only that your hand is leading us and that your love is supporting us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Go in peace.